0: Short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. It's been, I'm being Mr.
1: Gorbachev teared down this. The American people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies.
0: back to the Cold War show, Ray. Hello, Cam. How are you? I'm <laughs> good. You still there? I thought I'd lost yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah. Excellent. All right. um, <clears throat> it's all right. So, listen, this is uh, Cold War 29, I think, and it's a special edition. Um, uh, In that, we're going to be doing just a quick show on Fidel Castro. Now, we're recording this on uh, the 1st of December, 2016, uh, 30th of November, I guess, for you, Ray, uh, right. in the past. Because Castro died this week and, uh, at the age of 90, and we, we're planning on doing the Castro shows later on when we get to the revolution, and we will. We're going to do that in a lot more detail uh, when we get to that point in the narrative. But, you know, there's been a... Shit ton of stuff in the media about Castro um, over the last week, and uh, most of it um, is coming out of the United States or based on what comes out of the United States. And um, <clears throat> I have a very different view, as most of the, most of you will know, on Castro and the Cuban Revolution rightly or wrongly, what I wanted to do uh, is just take some time out to give you a perspective on it. Now I'm not saying my perspective is right as always, but I think right. it's a perspective that deserves um, contemplation. So okay. I, we're just gonna, we're gonna just we're just going talk about Fidel for an hour or so and um, we'll, we'll leave the detail for later on in the series but just it's kind of a timely thing. Now, Ray, growing up, as you have, in the United States during the Cold War, why don't you start off by giving me your view of Fidel?
1: Okay. Well, full disclosure, I never really studied uh, Castro. Um, Someone who likes history, I've I've read a lot of different books, but it's like saying I just never got around to studying Henry II. It's just not something that I was familiar with. Having said that, growing up, um, taking the basic required history courses in middle school and high school— Um, Cuba was bad, Uh, Castro was bad, he was evil, they sided with the Soviets, Uh, the whole uh, missile crisis that I'm sure we're going to get into, but generally he was... he took freedom away from the Cubans who had it before uh, with, a, with a, a government, Batista that uh, got along with the Americans. But basically, um, it was just very generic, very general and very blatant, very consistent that he was a bad person doing bad things to his own people, not allowing them to have any freedom. And he was on the bad side. He was with the Russians and he had to be stopped uh, at any cost. And he was a constant threat yeah. to our country.
0: Yeah, yeah. that sounds to me like uh, what I think uh, a lot of Americans think about Castro and the Cuban Revolution. So I've read uh, a lot of the obits that have come out from the media and a lot of stuff on Facebook that people have been posting. I've uh, read the comment sections of a lot of uh, stories online. I've got into a few debates on Facebook recently and have done many times in the past about Castro. And it's the same sort of... Themes. What, I've, what I've learned is that a couple of things, particularly about the view that most Americans that I engage with anyway, I don't want to paint all Americans with the brush, but the ones that I've engaged with <clears throat> seem to have on Castro, A, they're very, very simplistic. The, the version of the narrative that they have is very simplistic, very one-sided and biased. Right. Secondly, um, people are very emotional about the subject, uh, as I think you and I were talking about this yesterday at the end of another show, and I said it's... Whenever you get really, really worked up and emotional about a subject, it's usually a sign that you're not thinking very logically.
1: Right, you're feeling like, it, yeah.
0: Yeah, like if you and I were discussing what the best flavor of ice cream is, and you, started, you pulled out a gun and uh, started waving it around because I wouldn't accept your view that... Uh, pistachio is the ultimate ice cream flavor I'd go dude you you're getting really fucking worked up over this man <laughs> it's the same thing with with discussing these guys about history and and if w- the level of vitriol that i see in personal conversations with people vitriol not only towards castro but towards me for trying to provide an alternative perspective Right, Uh, indicates to me that people aren't thinking rationally or logically. They're getting emotional and worked up over this. Also, this whole simplistic view of Castro evil U.S. good, as you and I have discussed countless times on our various series over the years, it is rarely true that Mm -hmm. any one person or one culture or society is all good or all bad. And uh, that is true of Castro as much as it is of anyone. And, you know, the, the sort of perspective that America, Americans and American media seem to have of Castro reminds me a lot of the view that the British had and in large part still have about guys like Napoleon. Removed mm. 200 years. right? <laughs> the same sort of one-sided blindness uh exists and you know I, I got into my 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 study of history started when somebody recommended when i was 19 or 20 that i read a book on napoleon I was a mate of mine same guy who uh, got me into cigars gave me my first cigar mate Good of friend. mine he said we were in a bookshop one day and he said we were looking at books and he goes hey you ever read anything about napoleon i said no he goes oh mate fantastic story you should read it so i pulled a book off the shelf, bought it, Vincent Cronin's biography on Napoleon. And, you know, my view up until that point of Napoleon, what I just sort of picked up through osmosis, was that he was a warmonger, bad dude, mm-hmm. 18, early 19th century version of Hitler, maybe, um, conqueror, blah, 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 blah. Anti-peace. I read this biography right. and was, Yeah. I read this biography by Vincent Cronin and was like, wow, holy shit, that's a, that's a story I've never heard before. And it's completely different to the idea that I had about this guy. And then I started to wonder, well, why did I believe one thing when there's this completely other version of the story? Why haven't I heard that before, mm-hmm. which got me interested in not only just studying Napoleon, but thinking about history from a different perspective? um started to realize that as napoleon himself said uh it's the the victors who write history right. and it's 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 so it's very similar what i hear coming out of americans about castro so um there's a couple of ways that we could do this i mean i started to write a whole bunch of notes um on the background but then i was reading the new york times's obit on castro and I started to realize that maybe the easiest way to do this is just to take one of these obits and break it down mm-hmm. and sort of demonstrate the bias, half-truths, mistru- mi- mistruths. Is that a word? Untruths? I think untruths. Is mistruths. The word. Okay, who knows? I'm going with untruths. There we go. Um, <laughs> uh, that are prevalent in this story to try and, uh, and provide a different perspective. So let's let's try that and see how it goes. Right. Um, this is from New York Times, 26th of November, 2016. Fidel Castro, Cuban revolutionary who defied U.S., dies at 90. Fidel Castro, the fiery apostle of revolution who brought the Cold War to the Western Hemisphere in 1959 and then defied the United States for nearly half a century as Cuba's maximum leader, bedeviling 11 American presidents and briefly pushing the world to the brink of nuclear war, Died on Friday. He was 90. All right, let's stop there. He brought the Cold War to the West. Really? (laughs) So I guess it depends on how you define the Cold War. But as we've discussed on this series already recently, even though we haven't really got up to Hiroshima yet, the Cold War, by most accounts, started either at Yalta or... Uh, when the U.S. under Truman dropped two nuclear bombs three days apart on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that's when the Cold War came to the West, when the U.S. started it by dropping nuclear bombs and refusing to share the atomic technology with the Soviets. Uh, That was in 1945. Um, Castro and his revolution brought socialism, communism, to the Western Hemisphere. Um, And then the the Cuban Missile Crisis a couple of years later brought a nuclear standoff to the West, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say he brought the Cold War to the West. America was already in the West. America was already involved in the Cold War. (laughs) Um, I mean, maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but what do you think?
1: No, it's painting him in a box. It's already forcing you or maybe manipulating you into into thinking of him, viewing him in a certain light. It's like as bad as it, and as dangerous as the Cold War was, he made it that much more dangerous for the peace-loving Americans because of his actions. So uh, right away from the first yeah. sentence, you're already thinking that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And he pushed the world to the brink of nuclear war. Now, it does touch on this later on, but of course journalists know that most people don't read beyond the first few paragraphs of any right. article. That's why they say you don't bury don't bury the lead. Yeah. So you've you got to get people to think what you want them to think in the first line or paragraph or couple of paragraphs. But that still uh, makes
1: it even more so propaganda. If you're going to get your point of view, whatever you want to call it, in the first couple of sentences because you know they're not going to read the rest of it, that's not an article. That truly is propaganda.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, even if you balance it out a little bit later on, and they, which they don't really do actually in this, they touch on stuff but they don't balance it. But right. pushing the world to the brink of nuclear war—I'll talk about this a bit later. But as people probably know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the Soviets uh, put n- nuclear submarines off the coast of Cuba, pointed them at the U.S. But the reason they did that is because the U.S. had already tried to invade Cuba previously, and. Castro believed, and there was good reasons to believe, they were going to try and invade it again. Certainly mm-hmm. to, you know, launch various covert actions on his country. So the the missiles were there; they were as a defensive mechanism to stop or try to stop the U.S. from invading Cuba. Now to say that he pushed the world to the brink of nuclear war. When he was trying to defend himself from u s invasions they 'd already tried to invade once. Bay of Pigs happened before the Cuban missile crisis right anyway let 's get into it.
1: well let me just add one more thing to that because I no. read when he found out about the the uh, missiles coming and they were building the launch sites and whatnot. Um, Castro was upset. He said, No, I want tanks and planes because when they come, I don't want to be able to threaten them with nuclear missiles. I want to be able to fight them off with real with real weapons and stuff that I I can possibly use. Only after the missiles were there did he realize the bargaining position that he that he had. But at the time, he didn't want them. He wanted real weapons so he could fight because like you said, there was a very good chance that he knew they were coming again. And he just wanted to be ready in very practical terms.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, he'd managed to defend himself the first time, but he expected there to be another. I mean, the Bay of Pigs was sort of kind of an aborted attack.
1: Right. Uh, well, he Kennedy pulled he, back. Yeah. And he thought the second attack would truly be American soldiers and not just American-funded yes. soldiers. So he knew he needed superior equipment, and uh, so he wanted tanks and planes specifically, uh, and that's why he was upset when he found out about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let me continue with the New York Times um, New York Times. Cuban state television announced the death but gave no other details. In declining health for several years, Mr Castro had orchestrated what he hoped would be the continuation of his communist revolution, stepping aside in 2006 when a serious illness felled him. He provisionally ceded much of his power to his younger brother, Raul, now 85, and two years later formally resigned as president. Raúl Castro, who had fought alongside Fidel Castro from the earliest days of the insurrection and remained Minister of Defence and his brother's closest confidant, has ruled Cuba since then, although he has told the Cuban people he intends to resign in 2018. Fidel Castro had held on to power longer than any other living national leader except Queen Elizabeth II. He became a towering international figure whose importance in the 20th century far exceeded what might have been expected from the head of state of a Caribbean island nation of 11 million people. Mm-hmm. He dominated his country with strength and symbolism from the day he triumphantly entered Havana on January 8, 1959, and completed his overthrow of Fulgencio Batista by delivering his first major speech in the capital before tens of thousands of admirers at the vanquished dictator's military headquarters. Alright, so far so good, no problem with any of that, except they neglect to mention, at least in this stage, that Fulgencio Batista, the dictator, Was supported by the United States Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: They conveniently leave out That the US had ruled over Cuba As a puppet nation for the previous 60 years (laughs) Uh, As you and I have discussed earlier on this series There was the um, Spanish-American War When the Americans took over Cuba 1898, 1899 And so it had been a puppet regime Of the United States ever since Uh, And Batista in particular, who was extremely corrupt uh, in the last stages of his rule, the last decade or so, after he had performed a a coup years earlier. uh, Very much supported by the American government, American corporations, and the mob, who had a very large presence there. All of that is omitted from these uh, first few paragraphs. No discussion about that. Let me continue. A spotlight shone on him as he swaggered and spoke with passion until dawn. Finally, white doves were released to signal Cuba's new peace. When one landed on Mr. Castro, perching on a shoulder, the crowd erupted, chanting, Fidel! Fidel! To the war-weary Cubans gathered there and those watching on television, it was an electrifying sign that their young, bearded guerrilla leader was destined to be their saviour. Most people in the crowd had no idea what Mr. Castro planned for Cuba. A master of image and myth, Mr. Castro believed himself to be the messiah of his fatherland, an indispensable force with authority from on high to control Cuba and its people. Really? Did he? Did he he say that? Did they ask him that? Where did he say that he believed himself to be the messiah? God has ordained me. I have read uh, many, 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 many books on Castro, by Castro, his speeches, collections of his speeches, uh, his sort of autobiography that came out a decade or so ago. Um, I've read, you know, books about the revolution. I've never, ever <laughs> heard Castro believe call himself the Messiah of the Fatherland. Now... Yeah. They might be just using poetic license here and hyperbole, but obviously, for an American audience, saying that somebody considered themselves to be the Messiah—very yeah. politically weighted words or religiously weighted words—and the use of the word "fatherland." What do you think of when you think of as of fatherland? Uh, Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany. So they're making the connection here. He thought he was Jesus and Hitler <laughs> with, with their ter- with their terminology, right? So. An authority from on high, which sounds sacrilegious. Absolute. Right. To Christopher. Yeah, I mean, the terminology that they're using here is is extreme and, as far as I'm aware, false. Now, maybe somebody can pull out somewhere where a quote where Castro said he did consider himself the Messiah of his fatherland, but I'm certainly not aware of that. In fact, in everything I've ever read, and I've watched documentaries, interviews with him, hours and hours of documentaries, Um, He was a very humble man (laughs) For a dictator Mm -hmm. um, In that he believed it was his destiny To guide Cuba Uh, He believed he had a responsibility In the same way I think Julius Caesar And Augustus Caesar And Alexander and Napoleon Believed that it was their destiny And maybe Hitler did as well that they felt that they were the right person at the right time in the right place who had the vision, had the intellect, had the work ethic and the capability to get things done and to make the changes that need to be made. And I certainly think Castro fell into that uh, category. He certainly had the ego and the confidence to go along with that.
1: But, but there's a big difference, I think, mouth. between exactly.
0: being, being, considering yourself to be a visionary leader and considering yourself to be the messiah of the fatherland with authority from on high. I mean, yeah, there's a, a big much. difference between the two. Yeah. He wielded power like a tyrant, controlling every aspect of the island's existence. He was Cuba's Maximo leader. From atop a Cuban army tank, he directed his country's defences at the Bay of Pigs. Now, that's the only mention so far of the U.S.'s attempted invasion of Cuba under JFK. Mm -hmm. Doesn't spell out that for people who don't know that it was uh, an invasion of Cuba by the United States, just says Bay of Pigs. Maybe it's assuming that everyone knows what that is. I don't know that younger generations really know. Um And it doesn't really talk about why the U.S. was trying to invade. What had Cuba done? Had Cuba attacked the United States? That's why they were invading them. You and I know about the Atlantic Charter. FDR and Churchill signed in the early part of World War II that uh, all all countries had the right to Mm -hmm. self-determination. Why is the U.S. trying to invade this tiny little Caribbean island nation that hadn't done anything to them? Doesn't go into that at all. Right. countless details fell to him from selecting the color of uniforms that Cuban soldiers wore in Angola to overseeing a program to produce a super breed of milk cows he personally set the goals for sugar harvests he personally sent countless men to prison mm-hmm. um, evidence for that that he personally sent countless men to prison none they don't provide any they just state it as, as if it was fact right. they don't back it up uh, now should, this should. would be. Dis- yeah,
1: sorry, sorry, I apologize. Don't. They just shouldn't use the word "countless." I mean, I know that uh, we're talking thousands here, but and that's a lot. Don't get me wrong. But again, they're making it sound like whole villages or towns were uh, were you know the the equivalent of an entire village was sent to prison. So again, they hmm. should just be a little more careful with their words.
0: Millions and millions, <laughs> no. And B, uh, it's suggesting he personally sent that there was no judicial processes, that these were no extrajudicial imprisonments, right. that they didn't get a trial. And I know that Castro would argue, would have argued that, Cuba would argue against that, that they did have judicial... Pro- even during the early years after the, the revolutionaries took control of Cuba.
1: Now, now during right, the
0: Revolutionary it- War... It may have been different in, but uh, you know, it was it was wartime, and there there were executions made uh, during the actual fighting. But we're talking after that now. Let me let me preface this by saying I don't automatically believe everything that Castro or the revolutionary Cuban government says as being fact. But conversely, I don't believe everything that the New York Times says is fact either. And this is the argument that I get into with people on Facebook about this uh, all the time, is I'm not believing either side. I want evidence before I'm going to believe anything. You can't just say it, and therefore it's true. And that goes for either side.
1: Right. No, I I was just thinking about the one point you made, the, the single sentence, he personally sent countless men to prison. It makes it sound like they're innocent or whatever, but I'm sure they were guilty of something, or you know, even if it was bothering him or, or whatever. But again, it just makes it sound like they were just grabbed off the street for no reason and thrown into prison. So again, it's very skewed.
0: And I want to I want to stop here. You you make a good point. One of the reasons why I've been fascinated by Castro is, you know, like Napoleon. Actually, I I think I read my first biography on Castro. I don't know, 20 years ago, when I got into history, right, and, and, and I read the Napoleon thing, I started reading biographies of all of these sort of big figures, Caesar, Alexander, Castro, um, Nixon. I can, you know, I, I started just reading about all these big guys, trying to figure out what made them tick. And mm-hmm. the thing with Castro that I've always found is exactly the same thing as Napoleon. When you read Napoleon's... Letters or his speeches or anything that he said himself and things that um, he said, he, he, he what he believed, what his ideals were, what he believed in, what he was trying to do. And then you read what the British say about him. They're completely different. What okay. he said he believed in and what he was trying to do was completely um, opposite to what the British said about him. Now, that's interesting. Either... He's a complete bullshit artist and a liar, or their propaganda is is completely bullshit. Um, And and it's, you know, my study of Napoleon um, over the next 20 years, uh, up and through doing the series with Markham, was always trying to figure out where the truth lay in those things. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's probably a bit of truth in both, but it's trying to work out what was true and what was false. Was was Napoleon a complete bullshit artist? Did he not believe in these things he said he believed in? Or were the British spinning their own version of what he was doing, what he believed in, to justify their economic and military warfare against uh, the French Republic Mm -hmm. and the French Empire after he became emperor? Same with Castro. When I started to read Castro's speeches and and Che Guevara's uh, own writings as well, it didn't gel with the perspective that I was getting from some of the biographies and the U.S. media. Uh, In his own writings and his speeches, and also the writings of Che Guevara through his short lifetime, they spoke uh, earnestly and and passionately about justice and human rights. And Castro did his entire life. Now, you go and read Mein Kampf, and from the get-go, you know Hitler's... A, a, a decade, Right, right. You, you, yeah. you read Mein Kampf And he's like It's all the Jews problems We need to kill the Jews And get rid of the Jews So you read that I mean it, There's no There's no mystery About what Hitler's right. going to do When he gets into government He's already said it In Mein Kampf In 1925 Or whenever he wrote it Like a decade Before he came to power More or less mm-hmm. um, But when you read Castro Throughout his entire life, he he comes across, he presents himself as a passionate believer in human rights and justice for the poor. He started off life as a lawyer, uh, working pro bono for right. poor people uh, in um, in Cuba. So you look at that and go, okay, so does a guy who starts off as a lawyer, uh, working pro bono for the poor, turn into a brutal, you know, warmonger dictator? just extrajudiciously sending thousands of innocent people to jail that that doesn't that doesn't gel in my head now it's not right. impossible maybe yeah. he changed um maybe he was the world's greatest bullshit artist and he spent 60 70 years preaching justice and human rights while uh quietly at the back having people killed but that's a big claim to make and 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 if that's right. true I want evidence of that right So that's been, in my mind all these years, that's been the reason I don't fully accept the U.S. propaganda about Castro is because it doesn't gel with the other side of the story, what he's preached about. And it's very hard, I think, to preach one thing and do another consistently over the course of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Anywho. Keep going. Uh, But it was more than repression and fear that kept him and his totalitarian government in power for so long. Okay, stop evidence for repression provided. None. They're just stating it as if it was fact. No evidence presented. We're just expected to believe that that is true because the New York Times said it is. He had both admirers and detractors in Cuba and around the world. Some saw him as a ruthless despot who trampled rights and freedoms. Many others hailed him, as the crowds did that first night, as a revolutionary hero for the ages. Even when he fell ill and was hospitalized with diverticulitis in the summer of 2006, giving up most of his powers for the first time, Mr Castro tried to dictate the details of his own medical care and orchestrate the continuation of his communist revolution, engaging a plan as old as the revolution itself. By handing power to his brother, Mr. Castro once more raised the ire of his enemies in Washington. United States officials condemned the transition, saying it prolonged a dictatorship and again denied the long-suffering Cuban people a chance to control their own lives. Uh, Like they had under Batista, the (laughs) US-supported... Uh, dictatorship. Name, yeah, for and decades. This is, yeah, right here. Yeah. Now, they don't mention that uh, up until this point. They haven't mentioned at all the fact that Batista was a US uh, supported dictator and that the lives of the majority of the Cuban people before the revolution were horrible. Uh, they don't go into that at all. It, it, again, it presents, as you did in the, your first introduction to this, the idea that before Castro, life was great for the Cuban people and he ruined mm-hmm. it for them. No, it, right. was, it was horrible for the vast majority of the Cuban people. Um, they also don't mention that the long-suffering Cuban people have been long-suffering mostly because of U.S. economic warfare. <laughs> we were raping the place. Come on. yeah. We're several paragraphs into this story, they have not yet mentioned the economic sanctions that the US placed, the embargo on Cuba in 1959,
1: 1960,
0: yeah, uh, that yeah. the, the Cuban people have had to suffer under their inability to trade with the world's major superpower that's 90 miles away from them. Uh, and also, it's not just their inability to trade with the U.S. or to have U.S. tourism, based tourism, which would, which was a big component of their economy before the revolution, mm-hmm. but also the ability for the other countries around the world to trade with them, partly because you would raise the ire of the United States if you did so. Right. Any country that traded, and, and other countries have to various degrees, Netherlands, the China, the USSR, obviously, for a long time. But those countries were ones that didn't really care what the US thought about them. But for the rest of the developed world, the developed economies, if you traded with Cuba, you ran the risk of getting into trouble with the US. Uh, Things like foreign aid, things like uh, how they supported your different trade initiatives would be hampered by the fact that you were supporting Cuba. Also... Trade happens by sending very large ships. Most trade happens by sending very large ships around the world. If you're going to send a very large ship halfway around the world to Cuba to drop off supplies and pick up sugar and tobacco, you're probably going to want to stop at the U.S. at some point as well to refuel or to do trade there. You can't do that if you're then going to go to or from Cuba. The U.S. wouldn't let you do that. So it hampered trade from other countries as well. Plus, most trade is conducted post-World War II in U.S. dollars. Cuba being able to deal with U.S. dollars when they can't deal with a U.S. bank because of the embargo uh, is a a struggle. So it, it hampered Cuba's ability to trade in a whole variety of ways beyond the obvious ones. And... This affected the Cuban people more than anyone. For 60 years, their economy has been in the toilet. Now, look, yes, partially some of it's going to be with a have to do with a centrally planned communist economy, which we know has been very hard to make work everywhere that they've experimented with it in the 20th century. I'm mm. not discounting that that is going to be a part of it, but a massive part of it that is not mentioned yet in the New York Times article is... The economic warfare, well, that's what economic sanctions are, they're economic warfare. There was a deliberate attempt, and this is stated in the record by various American politicians from the beginning, it was a deliberate attempt by the U.S. to make life difficult for the Cuban people so they would overthrow their government. Right. They, The U.S. deliberately made life difficult on the Cuban people for 60 years. Deliberately. Absolutely. And this is, again, I, I, I don't have, this isn't my opinion, this right. is in the fucking record. I can quote from various congressmen and people like that who have set these things up from the get go. Yeah,
1: because Bobby Kennedy, um, uh, the brothers, the president's brother, he was in charge of it at one point. Yeah, basically make their lives so bad, so miserable that they will rise up and kill Castro themselves. He was in charge of that program for a while. So that is
0: just fact. Yeah. Um... Let me see where my quote... I've got a quote here from someone about this. Um, well, here's, here's a quote in my notes. Um, On March 2nd, sixty, two weeks before President Eisenhower approved a court action against... A covert action, sorry, against Castro, Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA briefed Vice President Nixon on operations already underway. Reading from a seven-page paper initiated by Bissell, who was one of the CIA uh, heads of, I think he was the head of covert operations at the time, titled What We Are Doing in Cuba, Dulles specified acts of economic warfare, sabotage, political propaganda, and a plan to use a drug, which if placed in Castro's food, would make him behave in such an irrational manner that a public appearance could well have very damaging results to him. Nixon was all for it. Damn. Uh, I guess not the cute I wanted on the embargo, but uh, quote I wanted on the embargo. But I've got that somewhere in my notes, so we'll get to it at some stage. So back to the New York Times. So um, no mention of any of this at this stage. But in December 2014, President Obama used his executive powers to dial down the decades of antagonism. Nice alliteration there, Dialled down the decades. Fucking love it. Uh, The antagonism between Washington and Havana by moving to exchange prisoners and normalise diplomatic relations between the two countries. A deal worked out with the help of Pope Francis and after 18 months of secret talks between representatives of both governments. Though increasingly frail and rarely seen in public, Mr. Castro even then made clear his enduring mistrust of the United States. Uh, Okay, I want to stop here again. His enduring mistrust of the United States. A lot is made of that, of uh, Castro's mistrust and his um, blaming of the United States for all of Cuba's problems. What people may not understand is how justified this is. A, because the (laughs) United States did try and invade the country, had supported the dictatorships for 60 years before the revolution. There are 638 supposed assassination attempts that the CIA uh, directly or indirectly sponsored against Castro. Mm -hmm. Um, Plus the history that the CIA has of overthrowing governments in Latin America, as well as other places of the world. Guatemala, Haiti, uh, Nicaragua, Chile, uh, Argentina, I'm talking about Latin America. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Um, On record, well understood, particularly by people in Latin America, if not by Americans. Um, And this, again, not conspiracy theories. This is documented (laughs) in the CIA files, um, covered by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Tim Weiner in his book, uh, Tim Weiner in the book uh, Legacy of Ashes on the CIA, as well as many other books. Um, very, very well understood. Documented overthrows of Latin American governments via covert methods. Um, covert methods usually include uh, financing uh, disaffected generals to or, or criminal uh, elements to uh, disrupt society, to uh, create riots, to uh, which they can then blame on the government. You know, including mass murder uh, and, and and assassination, all that kind of stuff that they can blame on the government. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, propaganda, like uh, paying uh, for newspapers or radios or magazines to spread false stories to raise the ire of the people and blame it on the government. Th- these were and remain, continue to be, tactics that the cia like other organizations of their ilk the kgb the nkvd mi6 etc have deployed in the past continued to deploy in order to overthrow uh, various regimes and governments dictatorships as well as democratically elected governments like iran you mentioned before in 1953 castro was well aware of that uh, as were the cubans in general so that's When they say they distrust the United States, that's why is they understood better than most Americans do because this has been kept from most Americans. It doesn't get talked about a lot. And, in fact, the CIA and the US government lied about most of these things extensively for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think their the overthrow of the government of Iran in 1953, they didn't admit to until the mid-90s. <laughs> they, they had denied it until the mid-90s.
1: Yeah, they, the did, they did not talk about it. They flatly denied it for decades. Yeah. yeah. So when you say uh, Castro has uh, enduring mistrust, it sounds like he has some grounds for that.
0: Yeah, but that's not the way it's played out in the NYT. They're just going, yes. oh, this crazy guy didn't trust us. Look at us. We're nice guys. Red, white, and blue all the way. Um okay. But that's why he had an enduring mistrust. Anyway, let me keep going. A few days after Mr. Obama's highly publicized visit to Cuba in 2016, the first by a sitting American president in 88 years, Mr. Castro penned a cranky response denigrating Mr. Obama's overtures of peace and insisting that Cuba did not need anything the United States was offering. To many, Fidel Castro was a self-obsessed zealot whose belief in his own destiny was unshakable. A chameleon whose economic and political colours were determined more by pragmatism than by doctrine. They say that like it's a bad thing, being pragmatic. (laughs) (laughs) But in his chest beat the heart of a true rebel. Fidel Castro said Henry M. Riston, the president of the Council of Foreign Relations in the 1950s and early 60s, was everything a revolutionary should be. Mr. Castro was perhaps the most important leader to emerge from Latin America since the wars of independence in the early 19th century. He was decidedly the most influential shaper of Cuban history since his own hero, Jose Martí, struggled for Cuban independence in the late 19th century. Mr. Castro's revolution transformed Cuban society and had a longer-lasting impact throughout the region than that of any other 20th century Latin American insurrection, with the possible exception of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. His legacy in Cuba and elsewhere has been a mixed record of social progress and abject poverty, of racial equality and political persecution, of medical advances and a degree of misery Misery comparable to the conditions that existed in Cuba when he entered Havana as a victorious guerrilla commander in 1959. Now, again, no mention of the economic sanctions uh, that the US imposed on Cuba and their role in the abject poverty uh, and degree of misery that they talk about. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or the U.S.'s role in supporting the Batista regime that led to the misery in the first place, which at least they did hint at here. Uh, The conditions of the Cubans prior to the revolution. Now, we're halfway into the article. No, we're not. We're 10%. Shit, this is going to be a long show. But they they, (laughs) they don't mention any of this yet. The U.S.'s role. It's completely just invisible to the eyes of the readers here. Now, like. People don't people in America don't believe that they get propagandized too by the right. media. Well, we have free media in this country and uh, freedom of speech blah 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 blah. Here is the New York Times, the record of truth, uh, the, uh, the, the the I mean the record of the establishment. this is purely propaganda to have got this far into the article and not mentioned the US's role in these things. There's yeah. no other way of, of, of explaining this without calling it propaganda, leaving stuff out. See, people think that propaganda is making stuff up. <laughs> it's also leaving things out. When you leave things out of the story, yeah. that is also deliberate propaganda. Yeah. Now, you have to ask then the question, why? Why is the New York Times leaving all this stuff out?
1: It will make us look bad.
0: Okay, why? Do, why is that a problem for the New York Times, which is supposed to be a journalistic uh, paper with integrity?
1: Oh, that's easy. Because if they say something that the reader doesn't like about ourselves, we're going to get mad about it and think less of the New York Times, think less of the article, and think less of the writer.
0: We don't. Oh, that's that's probably part of it. Another part of it is they're owned by a corporation. Corporations. Uh, uh, have in, an investment in the reputation of the United States. Um, and B, they, they they need advertisers that are also corporations. And if you mm. tell the truth about the US's role in these things, some of these corporations that are run by pro-ra-ra American People may withhold advertising from the paper. So, the, even if a journalist writes this stuff, their editors are going to take it out because their publishers are going to tell them to take it out because if it looks bad, then they can't sell advertising and then they're, they're already losing money as it is most newspapers over there. You know, you, you, there are different economic mechanisms in place. Propaganda isn't always. A dictator sitting on a throne telling the press what they can and can't say. There are other mechanisms by which propaganda survives and happens. There are economic drivers and levers that drive this, in case, leaving, leaving pertinent information out of mm-hmm. the story. Right?
1: To purposefully skew to a certain goal, direction, or
0: impression that you want the story to make. Exactly, and also because the New York Times, along with the rest of the U.S. media, has been slagging off Castro for sixty years, they can't suddenly turn around and say, "Well, you know, really, in retrospect, you know, a lot of what he did was probably fair. That's probably reasonable. We're probably the bad guys for most of this story. You know, I know we've been telling you for sixty years that we're the good guys and he's the bad, but really, eh, eh, you know, yeah. now that we think about it, yeah, uh, we could share
1: the blame. We could share the blame."
0: Yeah, they can't. I mean, they could do that in theory, but it's very, very difficult for them to do that for a whole bunch of factors. Yeah. So again, uh, we're this far in the story. No mention of the US's role in economic sanctions or Batista. Any of this? We keep going. The image that made him a symbol of revolution throughout the world and an inspiration to many imitators. Uh, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela considered Mr. Castro his ideological godfather. Subcommander Marcos. Again, began a revolt in the mountains of southern Mexico in 1994 using many of the same tactics. Even Mr. Castro's spotty performance as an aging autocrat in charge of a foundering economy could not undermine his image. But beyond anything else, it was Mr. Castro's obsession with the United States and America's obsession with him that shaped his rule. After he embraced communism, Washington portrayed him as a devil and a tyrant and repeatedly tried to remove him from power through an ill-fated invasion of the Bay of Pigs in 1961, an economic embargo that has lasted decades, assassination plots, and even bizarre plans to undercut his prestige by making his beard fall out. Okay, so we get a mention, finally, of the U.S.'s role in this, very brief, nineteen paragraphs in, but right. at least they do yeah. mention it.
1: I was just gonna I was just gonna say this as an American. They said all those things that they tried to do to Castro, but before that, the second sentence says after he embraced communism. So once you put that in there, everything is fair game. Because I'm an American because of the Cold War, anything and everything you can do to take him out is now okay. Because he embraced communism.
0: Yeah. But you put like, that
1: disclaimer in there, it's It's done. It's a moot point.
0: But what happened to the Atlantic Charter, Ray, and self-determination for all people? Fuck
1: the Atlantic Charter. Mm. Churchill didn't want it. Stalin ignored it. FDR, I don't know, maybe he smoked one of his, cigar, his cigarettes backwards. I have no idea. But like you said in the show, FDR was pretty much going after the British Empire when that came up. He's like, okay, we can free the world, Britain, and you can help us, but you can't fucking control a fourth or whatever it is, a fourth of the world after we do this because it would be tacky. So those were just words at a time to have a moral high ground to take on the Axis powers. Didn't mean it. It was just a political expediency.
0: Yeah, I I think FDR probably did mean it uh, in one way. I mean, I, I also think it had a lot to do with the idea of the open door policy. Really what they wanted is... None of these countries to be locked into trading blocks, so exactly. the U.S. could trade with them. But then, as we'll explore in the show later on, when the Truman Doctrine comes or comes along, NSC sixty eight and the Truman Doctrine in nineteen fifty or whatever it is, late forties, fifty, that uh, fuck the fuck the uh, Atlantic <laughs> Charter right now. It's, uh, <laughs> now the Truman That's Doctrine America. takes over, which is America has to run everything exactly anyway, directly or indirectly. Um, I'm looking for some, I had some stats here that I can't find, but basically under um, Batista, American corporations controlled something like 80% of the the commercial operations. The farms, uh, you know, which was the majority of the Cuban economy, the farms and the casinos The casinos were controlled, and it was Las Vegas before Las Vegas was Las Vegas. Right. Uh, The casinos were run by the mob. They obviously made a lot of money there, and a lot of uh, American business people did a lot of business with the mob down in Havana, uh, and politicians as well. But uh, also the farms, the sugar farms, the fruit farms, the the tobacco, that was the majority of the Cuban economy, tiny tiny island nation. Uh, Were something like eighty percent on average was were owned by American corporations, and the money was the profits were flying back into America. Right, there there was a middle class that profited, as there always are in these situations, the 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 Cuban middle class and upper class that profited from being uh, managers or senior executives working for these American corporations. And when those corporations got kicked out by the communists, A, the corporations were pissed off, and B, the Cuban middle class and upper classes that lost those cushy jobs were pissed off. So that's mm-hmm. where you get a lot of pissed off Cubans from. Uh, a lot of those ended up in Miami, or their children ended up in Miami. But, uh, yeah, just it was, it was pretty much owned. Cuba was pretty much owned, even though they had a Cuban president under Batista, dictator... Cuban industry was pretty much owned by American corporations before 1959. Uh, Again, no mention of that up until this point in the article. Uh, Let me continue. Mr. Castro's defiance of American power made him a beacon of resistance in Latin America and elsewhere, and his bushy beard, long Cuban cigar, and green fatigues became universal symbols of rebellion. Mr. Castro's understanding of the power of images, especially on television, helped him retain the loyalty of many Cubans even during the harshest periods of deprivation and isolation when he routinely blamed America and its embargo for many of Cuba's ills. Okay, let's break that down for a second. He's, it was his power of images that helped him retain the loyalty of the Cubans. Their suggestion so it, is... So like he's tricking them. Yeah. Not that they you know, valued the fact that he had saved them from what life was like under the Batista regime, which they all understood. No, no, he was tricking them using the power of images and his beard. I mean, (laughs) like, can you, can you see the manipulation of the New York times here in the way that they represent this? There's no balance in this. It's, Propaganda. It's it's a particular point of view that they're pushing across here. Yeah, it's well done. And he routinely blamed America and its embargo, which is true. But they don't really talk about how legitimate that was. It's almost <laughs> like oh, he was a big whiny baby. Yeah, <laughs> Blame, and- the fact that the world's major economic superpower tried to prevent anyone from trading with Cuba. He had. A, he was blaming us for his problems. What a big baby. Well, not only
1: that, but just, I mean, they don't, they don't, uh, you know, like you said, go into the degree of the embargo. There's, oh, there was just an embargo. I mean, how how extensive was it? They're not saying. And again, they're just making him sound like a whiny baby. So uh, they're soft pitching it in
0: when it's convenient for them, for the writer. Yeah. And his mastery of words and thousands of speeches, often lasting hours, imbued many Cubans with his own hatred of the United States by keeping them on constant watch for an invasion, military, economic or ideological, from the North. So it was his speeches that made the Cubans hate the United States, not the fact that they all well understood that the Batista regime had been supported by the United States government, CIA and corporations, Um, No, it wasn't the the fact that they understood their own fucking history. He tricked them. (laughs) And by the way, the Cubans don't hate the United States. And Castro didn't hate the United States. Castro is on record uh, in many, many places in speeches, in his writings, and even in his documentaries. He's saying, and even in the beginning of the fucking intro to this show, man. Yeah. The American people, I think, is a good people. They are not uh, to blame for the for the lies or whatever the quote is. Castro understood that it wasn't the American people, as I understand. You know, people tell me I you know blame me, say I'm anti-American. I don't blame the American people. The American people are like any other people: the Russian people, the Chinese people, the German people, the Iranian people, the Iraqi people, the, the Australian people. They're essentially good people. Most people just want the same things: they want food in their belly. Look after their families. They want love. They want to be safe, you know, uh, from from fear of getting hurt. They they want to be entertained. They want to be fulfilled with some sort of quest, spiritual or hobby. That's all any of us want. Most of us just yeah. want to live a nice, comfortable-ish, good life. Have something to do with ourselves so we feel productive. That's all most people want. You know what Castro's talking about, and you know, what the Cuban people are talking about. What I'm talking about. Isn't the people in general? It's the military-industrial complex that is trying to take everything and leave nothing, and uh, will lie and burn their way through to getting what they want. That's what we're talking about when we say the United States. It's not the people, right? And he understood that. Although the people do support, although the people do support that to a point. Uh, you supposedly have free and fair elections in a democracy, and so you're voting for presidents and congressmen and women, senators that are enabling this and not stopping it. So yeah, you have a but we all have a degree. As well. well, that's true, yeah, but we all have a degree of accountability and responsibility to a point. Um, it's debatable how how much that is, but anyway, that's his own hatred of the United States. I, I've heard Castro say many, many, many times. I don't hate the American people. It's not their fault. It's the it's the military-industrial complex. And, and not in those exact words, but essentially that, right? Right. Over many years, Mr. Castro gave hundreds of interviews and retained the ability to twist the most compromising question to his favour. In a 1985 interview in Playboy magazine, he was asked how he would respond to President Ronald Reagan's description of him as a ruthless military dictator. Let's think about your question, Mr. Castro said, toying with his interviewer. If being a dictator means governing by decree, then you might use that argument to accuse the Pope of being a dictator. (laughs) Now, I think that's a fair point. And yet, they're saying he had the ability to twist, that he was toying. The words that they're using to make it... Not saying, you know, they don't say, you know... Uh, once, when he was being interviewed, he made a reasonable point about the Pope. No, he was <laughs> twisting and toying, like a cat playing with a mouse. Exactly. You see the way that this is the way that these things are written to subconsciously shape a the reader's yeah. view. Yeah, paint a picture of this guy. He turned the question back on Reagan. If his power includes something as monstrously undemocratic as the ability to order a thermonuclear war, I ask you. Who then is more of a dictator, the President of the United States or I? Again, reasonable question. If you, have the order, if you have the ability to order the destruction of the human race with the press of a button, which one of you is really the dictator? Yeah. The guy who controls a small Caribbean island nation with no nuclear yeah. technology or the guy who can wipe out the world with the press of a button?
1: All Ca- no, no, no. It's a good point. <laughs> it's a close one. But all Castro can do is make sure you don't get sugar and tobacco. That's pretty much the extent <laughs> of his power.
0: Actually, he wanted to sell them sugar and tobacco. They wouldn't let him sell them sugar and That's tobacco. That's right. That's right. After leading his guerrillas against a repressive Cuban dictator, at least they oh, put that out, finally... Right. Mr. Castro, in his early 30s, aligned Cuba with the Soviet Union and used Cuban troops to support revolution in Africa and throughout Latin America. Now, again, they didn't point out that the repressive Cuban dictator was supported by the U.S. government. That's still not been mentioned. Uh, Sin of omission, again, propaganda by omission. His willingness to allow the Soviets to build missile-launching sites in Cuba led to a harrowing diplomatic standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union in the fall of 1962, one that could have escalated into a nuclear exchange. The world remained tense until the confrontation was diffused 13 days after it began and the launching pads were dismantled. Dismantled. Again, no mention that the missiles were there to prevent another attempted US invasion. His willingness to allow the Soviets... Like, he shouldn't have allowed them to defend right. him from an American invasion.
1: And, and what Wait, we're going to find out I later... Mean, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you. No, I was just going to say, and we're going to find out later, the one of this, uh, one of these, the ways it gets diffused is, I think they're going to pull out the uh, nuclear missiles from Turkey or something like that. So Russia is simply trying to do to the United States what we had done to Russia. We just got there first.
0: Well, that was the Soviet viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, the United yeah. States already had nuclear missiles in Turkey pointed at Russia. Right? Uh, they haven't mentioned that yet in this at all. Usually, doesn't get mentioned in uh, American um, coverage of the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was the trade-off. Uh, Ken- Kennedy said to Khrushchev, "All right, well, we'll pull out." Well, Khrushchev said, "You take your, you take your nuclear missiles." Out of Turkey and we'll take ours out of Cuba And they agreed to that Castro wasn't very happy about that, by the way Because uh, uh, it did nothing for he him
1: He pissed <laughs> He called Khrushchev a yeah. bastard and a son of a bitch
0: Yeah, I mean, he said, well, hold on You could have at least said, and end the economic embargoes <laughs> And agreed, and <laughs> no more fucking invasions or assassination attempts Before you take your playing cards <laughs> off the table Like, fuck, what about me? Thanks well, for the he, support,
1: motherfucker. And that's when Castro realized that he was nothing more than a pawn to both sides. And that he, yeah, he really, really got angry with the Russians after that.
0: Yeah. Uh, anywho, uh, with the disillusion of the Soviet Union in 1991, Mr. Castro faced one of his biggest challenges, surviving without huge communist subsidies. He defied predictions of his political demise. When threatened, he fanned antagonism towards the United States. And when the Cuban economy neared collapse, he legalized the United States dollar, which he had railed against since the 1950s, only to ban dollars again a few years later when the economy stabilized. Mr. Castro continued to taunt American presidents for a half century, frustrating all of Washington's attempts to contain him. Contain. Not assassinate. Overthrow. Let's use the word... Poison. Contain. Yeah. yeah. Contain. Yeah. We use the word contain because what? it sounds less threatening than kill him. Well, you contain
1: a rabid dog. Uh, you, you cage a rabid dog. It sounds like he's dangerous to everybody. Let's see if we can just keep him in Cuba. Like we're doing the world yeah. a favor.
0: Yeah. Contain. After nearly five decades as a prior of the West, even when his once booming voice had withered to an old man's whisper and his beard had turned grey, he remained defiant. And but, by the way, contain him! What by what right does America have to contain the leader of another country? Yeah, um, I'm going to guess manifest
1: destiny, the Marshall Plan, Truman the- Doctrine. Truman Doctrine, there we go. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, no, just within the context of the Cold War, we justified it to ourselves. And that's really all we had to do because there was no higher power to go to.
0: This whole, and this doesn't get mentioned in the article at all. We just assume, the article just assumes that Washington has the right to contain the leader of another country. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, the, the hypocrisy in that is mind-blowing and astounding but they just it just blows right past most people when they read this I'm sure he often told interviewers that he identified with Don Quixote and like Quixote he struggled against threats both real and imagined preparing for decades for example for another invasion that never came well why did it never come probably because he'd been preparing for decades for it <laughs> it reminds me of the Bert Nerney sketch where Bert walks in and Ernie's sitting there with a banana in his ear, and Bert says, "Hey, Ernie, why do you have the banana in your ear?" And Ernie says, "What was that, Bert?" He says, "Why do you have a banana in your ear?" And Ernie goes, "I can't hear you. I've got a banana in my ear." And then he takes the banana out, and Bert says, "Why do you have a? Why did you have a banana in your ear?" And Ernie says, "To, to keep the elephants away." Bert says, "Ernie, there are no elephants in Sesame Street." And Ernie says, "See, it works." <laughs> Oh,
1: and this quote is Anywho. wrong. He doesn't—he doesn't identify with Don Quixote. He identifies as the Messiah. So let's get that straight right now.
0: <laughs> yeah. He, um, yeah, he prepared for decades because it was a, an ever-present threat. The U.S. never said, "Hey, listen, we have no interest in overthrowing the regime in Cuba. Let's live, live and let live. Let's just reestablish until Obama. Really, let's establish diplomatic relations again." So yes, they got to prepare. Were, Cuba were on a constant war fought for sixty years, and in the meantime, since then, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, they, the US haven't attempted another invasion of Cuba after Bay of Pigs, but meanwhile, they have overthrown governments across Latin America directly and indirectly. If people don't know that, go and read up on uh, Haiti, uh, Guatemala, uh, Venezuela. They, they tried to overthrow Chavez his first time around there. Um, yeah, I mean, the list goes on. So, uh, the yeah, I mean, he understood that what the U.S. was capable of and actually was doing throughout Latin America. The Iran-Contra uh, scandal that happened under Reagan's administration when mm-hmm. the U.S. were legally and secretly uh, funneling cash and weapons between Iran, which had an embargo at the time as well, and the Contras, the uh, rebels, or uh, the counter-revolutionary rebels in Nicaragua to try and def- overthrow the Nicaraguan government. That was under Reagan in the 80s and Ollie North and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like Castro knew what was going on in these other regions and yes, he's prepared for decades to prevent that happening to Cuba. But the way that they presented here... Is that he was Don Quixote tilting at windmills that never right. happened? It was all imaginary. He's crazy again. Propaganda, propaganda. They don't mention his justified fears of a US overthrow because it had happened and was happening across other Latin American countries. They just just doesn't even fucking get a mention, man. That's how that's how American media propaganda works. We just eh, we just leave stuff out. Eh, that, <laughs> There's things they need to know, things that they don't need to know.
1: Look, it's not that the information is...
0: Yeah, but here's the thing. It's not like the information is hidden from you. It's out there, but you have to work to find it. And they know that most Americans are working two jobs. And when they're not working, they're watching football and drinking beer and watching reality TV. So they don't have the time or the energy to go and work for it and read and, and dig up this information. So it's, it's, it's out there, but it takes too much work to find it. Exactly. (sighs) Can you still hear me? You still there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. You just went quiet. Oh, yeah, I'm here. Okay. I'm here too. You know, uh, Oh, good. As the leaders of every other nation of the hemisphere gathered in Quebec City in April 2001 for the third summit of the Americas, an uninvited Mr. Castro, then 74, fumed in Havana, presiding over ceremonies commemorating the embarrassing defeat of CIA backed exiles at the Bay of Pigs in 1961. Okay, first mention of the CIA backing the invasion, I think. Yes, God knows how many paragraphs in brief mention, but now you can't say they never mention it. Yeah, we mentioned it. Bottom Look there of page was that five. Yeah, one line down there we mentioned it. you know <laughs> we're not hiding it. <laughs> it's buried, but we're not hiding it. No. True to character, he portrayed his exclusion as a sign of strength, declaring that Cuba is the only country in the world that does not need to trade with the United States. Fidel Alejandro Castro Ruz was born on October 13, 1926 or 27, in some reports, in what was then the eastern Cuban province of Oriente, the son of a plantation owner, Angel Castro, and one of his maids, Lina Ruz Gonzalez, who became his second wife and had seven children. Mm. The father was a Spaniard who had arrived in Cuba under mysterious circumstances. One account, supported by Mr. Castro himself, was that his father had agreed to take the place of a Spanish aristocrat who had been drafted into the Spanish army in the late 19th century to fight against Cuban independence and American hegemony. Um, just hold on a second, man. Shit, I've got yeah. a meeting that I'm supposed to get to and I'm going to have a share and get out there and I'm got to leave in like five minutes. Sorry, folks. Look, I've just realized that I'm late for a meeting and I've got to get out of here. So we're going to have to... This is part one of our quick Castro review Um, and we will do part two again soon. Uh, So, um, yeah, we'll leave it there. Thanks. Got to go. Got to run. Got a real job I've got to take care of. Thanks, buddy. Yeah.
1: has descended across the continent.